This is Dr. Celeste Holbrook, and you're listening to The Better Human Show. I like to say that foreplay is everything that happens in between orgasms. <laughs> so all of the day-to-day, all of you know the nights that you're not having sex are all working up towards that sexual experience. And if you think about it that way, you can, you can really have incredible, mind-numbing sex that fuels your relationship. Welcome to the Better Human Podcast, where we talk health and fitness, nutrition, relationships, personal development, and giving back. How to be more effective and an overall better human being. Now, here's your host, David Ratchford. Better Humans, today we are joined by Dr. Celeste Holbrook who is a sexologist, author, and speaker who helps women, men, and couples achieve their best sex life through intentional behavior changes. Welcome to the Better Human Show, Celeste. Thank you, David. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we've had a number of guests on the Better Human Show talking about intimacy and uh, and sex in some quite frank uh, discussions. (laughs) However, we have not had a sexologist or a sex therapist um, on our show. So, and being that sex is what keeps us going as a human race, it's a pretty important part of our expression (laughs) of of our personalities. Um, So I would love to hear a little bit more about first, why you decided to get into the field of sexual health and relationships. Sure. Well, I wanted to reiterate what you just said about the importance of sex Um, and something that I love to um, think about is that sex really is one of the only things that brings us together as far as a commonality besides eating and sleeping and breathing. You know, that's the one thing that most of us, the majority of us, also do. Um, And so it's... When we're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. Something that we would like to be doing, right? Um, So, you know, it's just one of those things that is very common, but we don't necessarily talk about it in real terms very much. We see, you know, sex a lot in TV and um, online and what whatnot, but we don't really have a whole lot of conversations about it um, too often. And um, my mission is to kind of change that. So thanks for helping me. <laughs> yeah. And it is, why is it, well, maybe this is a good question to start off with is why is it so hard for us to talk about sex? I mean, especially with someone that we're intimate with, I mean, you know, whether it be dating or even married, you know, at some point we're doing it, but it's tough to talk about. Yeah, it is tough to talk talk about, and um, if it is tough for you to talk about, you know your your listeners to talk about, you're not alone. <laughs> you know, most people have a hard time um, talking about sex, and you know it comes from years and years and years of us uh, feeling that sex is not appropriate or that sex is dirty or dark, um, and you know we as Americans. We are interesting because we are actually more conservative in how we talk to each other, like our partners, um, but less conservative in how we handle media and things like that. Whereas um, other countries, other whole continents like Europe, um, tend to be more comfortable talking about the subject, but less comfortable with, you know, media type things. So when you say media, um, can you explain that? Like uh, having sex on represented on commercials or 
Correct, correct. And that's not across the board for every other country, but um, we tend to over-sexualize in, in the States a, more than some of some other countries do, but have a harder time in, in uh, comparison talking about it. So it's kind of this dichotomy. We see it a lot. We think we know a lot about sex, um, but yet it's hard for us to ask for what we need, want, and desire in, in the bedroom. So, you know, back to your original question about why it's so difficult for us to talk about sex, um, our country is based on a puritanical view. So over the years, we've just um, not, kind of, you know, we are latent, I would say, in coming out of our shell as far as um, finding our sex important and more than just, you know, something that, you know, couples do and um, understanding the bigger picture of it. And it, and it comes from those puritanical roots of, that our country was founded on. Mm-hmm. So it seems, though, that this with the Internet and with, you know, for example, the the media content we get online where, you know, we're really less than probably two clicks away from hardcore <laughs> pornography wherever we sure. are. Um, sure. And the fact that youth and the the younger generations are seeing it and being exposed to it um, at a much younger age. Are those puritanical um, underpinnings, you, you know, being eroded rapidly now? Well, what's interesting is that porn isn't sex. <laughs> and in, in terms of um, emotionally connecting with somebody on a physical level. Um, so porn is a one way street and you're right. And in, in that you know, especially our young boys are seeing pornography at a younger and younger age or some sort of, you know, sexual ideation or explicit imaging at a younger and younger age. The average age that um, a boy sees porn um, is 12. So um, we've kind of produced this whole, after the revolution of the internet, we've kind of produced these generations of, you know, especially boys and and many girls who their only sex education is through pornography. And although it might make one more comfortable with nudity or with sex in general, the messages of sex on pornography aren't necessarily the ones that we want to send to a young boy as far as this, you know, this is how to have a healthy sexual relationship, you know. Um, so it's interesting that we, we don't have very good sex ed in our, in our classrooms. Our parents are still, parent, we as parents are still having a hard time talking to our kids about sex, but they are seeing it visually and thinking that this is, you know, the proper, um, you know, way to go about sex. And what happens is, you know, say boy is uh, watching pornography since 12, grows up, um, marries a girl at 22, 23 girl has not been as exposed to pornography and girl has not had as many, you know, partners or relationships maybe. Um, and then when they get into a situation where they're ready to have sex, um, you know, boy thinks sex looks like one thing and the girl thinks like sex, thinks sex looks like a, quite a different thing. Um, and so they end up in my office <laughs> with relationship problems because um, the expectations are just so drastically different. Um, so I'm seeing that a lot where uh, because we're educated on porn as far as sex goes, um, that the expectation levels of what a starting out sexual experience would be is very different for for men and women um, a lot of the times. So it's just fascinating to me that um, that in a in a in a culture where we are so 
explicit in our imaging, we still have problems with the actual act. <laughs> yeah. So why did you decide to focus on sexual health and sexual relationships in your professional practice? Sure. That's a really good question, one that I get asked a lot. And I will tell you the answer isn't as exciting as probably someone might think. But um, I was working on my PhD in health education. So I was in the business of kind of changing health behaviors for people. Um, and I was teaching as a grad assistant some of the basic health classes um, at the university where I worked and then at several other universities. Um, and they asked me to teach the basic sexuality class for the college students. Um, and it was fascinating to me what the college students were going through, what they knew and what they didn't know. Um, and the questions they asked once that I could achieve a very safe space for them to ask those questions. And it just became just fascinating to me. So after that, I, um, I left teaching and started working for a large sex toy company called Pure Romance. They're in, like an in-home party plan company. Um, and they sell sex toys to women. So it's kind of like Avon or Pampered Chef. You, yeah. you go, yeah, you or, go into it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like sex toy parties. So I, my job was, I was the head of health education, sexual health education at the corporate office for their company. So my job was to make sure that all of these consultants who were going out to these women's homes um, made sure they had the right sexual information because what was happening was um, women would have questions, sexual health questions, but kind of be a little too embarrassed or didn't think it was important enough to ask an OB-GYN, but really needed more information than like a girlfriend or Cosmo magazine would have. So they would ask the, the sex, you know, the sex toy representative, the consultant questions like, you know, I experienced really low libido or sex is painful when I have it or, um, you know, I've gone through cancer diagnosis and treatment and I've lost a breast and now I don't feel feminine. You know, those kind of questions were where there really wasn't anybody in particular to ask. And so I just decided I wanted to become that kind of in-between, somebody in between an OB-GYN and a traditional marriage and family therapist that could address lots of these unanswered questions, um, especially from women. And most of my practice is working with women and couples. Um, but, but that's kind of how I fell into it. So I, after I, um, I left the, the large company because I had uh, twins, <laughs> um, I took a little time off when they were born. And then I decided I wanted, you know, um, to really take my practice into my own hands. So I had at that point, you know, graduated with my PhD and I, and I opened my own practice in Columbus, Ohio. And that's kind of how I got, I got there, <laughs> but it's not quite as fun as an, and, and exciting as, as some, as you might think. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an interesting path that, you know, and, it, and it's refreshing to hear that versus, you know, um, sometimes when we ask on how people get into a profession, especially in the, the psychology and the relationship space, it's <laughs> because they're doing work on themselves. Yes. And, you know, and it's like, I'm glad that we didn't go down, you know, a horror story rabbit hole, <laughs> Which, you know, which is sometimes illustrative and, and, and interesting, too, and gives people hope for overcoming, you know, some 
some really traumatic uh, experiences. And sure, and I, you know, I have a little bit of a story. I, I when I first started becoming sexually active, I I did experience very painful intercourse, and sex wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. And that's not an uncommon thing for for women to have happen. Um, and when I, you know, I was experiencing this really painful intercourse, and the only thing I knew was to go to an OB/GYN. So I went to my OB-GYN and I, I kind of told him what was happening. And he said to me, he said, Celeste, you know that this is going to go away once you have children. And I just thought that was a really bad answer <laughs> because one, I'm not going to have children to fix this issue. And two, uh, I'm never going to have children if I can't have sex that is pleasurable. You know what I mean? So um, I just thought there has to be a better answer to that. So that's kind of my own personal story, but I was already kind of in, you know, in, in the process of figuring out that that's where I wanted to go anyway. And that just kind of pushed me in that direction. So yeah. I kind of came the professional I wish I had had at the moment. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So when, when women and or men, you know, couples, but mm-hmm. let's focus with, with women because our show here is both men and women that listen to the show, and and maybe it's got a few more men than than women. That that's the general podcast demo, demographic. But sure. um, what are some of the most common things that people come to see you for? Sure, that's a really good question. So the most common things that people see me for um, is. Uh, low libido is probably the biggest one. Uh, painful intercourse is probably second. Um, I have a lot of clients who are married to or in a relationship with somebody who is a sex addict. So I work with them um, while the sex addict is in the recovery process to try and figure out um, how to navigate a sexual relationship that is healthy. Um, and I talk, I actually work a lot with women who have gone through, um, a chronic disease or a disease like cancer, um, cause lots of these chronic diseases can really wreak havoc on somebody's sex drive and sex life. Um, so like I gave the example before of, you know, a woman who has lost her, her breast and, you know, chose not to do reconstruction or did do reconstruction, but still doesn't feel like her feminine self. And, you know, when sex or your sexual script starts with breast massage, you know, that's how your partner kind of indicates that they're interested in sex. And then you no longer have breasts. It's a problem (laughs) and can really wreak havoc on a sex life. So, um, those are probably the things that I see most often. I see some erectile dysfunction cases from here and there or premature ejaculation cases. Um, but the majority of my caseload is is women and their partners. Let's talk a little bit about libido mismatch. Um, and I think this can go in, in a couple ways. Like uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned where one partner might be suffering or feel like they have a low libido and mm-hmm. so they're not being receptive to their partner's advances. And then you mentioned the other extreme where um, there's a sexual addiction and, you know, And maybe, you know, as I understand sexual addiction, it's more about um, compulsion and perhaps going outside of the relationship to satiate Mm -hmm. those cravings. Um, But if you could discuss those, both those scenarios a little bit, I think that'd be an interesting thing for us to go to look at. Absolutely. And and, and this one of the things that I find most common in my practice is one of the partners has a higher or lower libido than the other. Um, and here's what I always want to start out with this conversation with is that in general, and I don't, I don't like to put 
necessarily stereotypes on men and women, but in general, we'll take this as a general statement. Um, sex, <laughs> let me, let me try and say this, you know, right. Um, sex erases problems for men and problems erase sex for women. I'll say that again. Sex erases problems for men. Problems erase sex for women. So <laughs> the, the interesting thing is sex is very much like a stress relief for many men. Um, and very much like, you know, let's say two partners had a fight and this is, we'll say this is a male female partnership and, um, they had a fight and, you know, they went to bed and they ended up having sex for the male partner. Usually they think, well, we had sex, so everything must be okay. Everything's fantastic. Makeup <laughs> sex is the best. Right. right. But, um, for the female, she might be thinking, I can't believe we never ended this conversation. We never fixed the problem. Everything's not okay. And then he wanted to have sex. This is ridiculous. So, um, so, you know, it's really interesting to me and fascinating to find, to figure out how to, um, how to kind of, uh, match that dynamic. So one of the things that is, uh, one of the tenets of my favorite sex therapist, her name is Esther Perel. She wrote Mating in Captivity. If you don't own that book, go buy that book right now. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I have uh, heard her on other podcasts. Yes. Yeah. She is awesome. So she's like, I totally have a fangirl crush on this woman, but she uh, wrote, wrote this book, Mating in Captivity. And one of her main tenets that she talks about all the time is that the biggest killer of arousal is responsibility. The biggest killer of arousal is responsibility. So that's why <laughs> for, for many women, um, if there are still things on her mind, you're, she's still thinking about the laundry or she's laying there and she's thinking I should paint the ceiling a different color or whatever it is, you know, having those responsibilities on her mind is going to kill her libido. So the, one of the biggest things I work on with couples to try and match their libido better is to get rid of those responsibilities. And for men, you know, to try and help men understand and deal with a higher libido, um, you know, what I have found is that many men say, you know, I wish we had more sex, when really they mean, I wish we had better sex. And this is kind of frank, but I get a lot of men tell me when we're on our one-on-ones without their female partner in the room, I feel like I am masturbating inside my wife. She is just not present. Um, And that's very common for men to feel that way. And they would much rather have a wife or a partner, a spouse who is present in the sexual bedroom instead of just there. Sure. You know, and participatory. Exactly. Exactly. So they would trade more sex for better sex. Um, so what I try to do and work with couples on is try to figure out what, what is going to work for them. You know, how can we reduce her responsibilities so she can show up and be an active part of the sexual relationship? And how can we work with, um, with him to understand, you know, and, and participate in the, in the foreplay and in the things that get her aroused, you know, um, Typically, men are like, you know, microwaves. Women are like crockpots. They just need a little more time to warm up. Um, and men don't need as, as long of time. Um, and so finding that kind of middle ground that, that works for both of them. I like to say that foreplay is everything that happens in between orgasms. <laughs> so all of the day-to-day, all of the, um, 
you know, the nights that you're not having sex are all working up towards that sexual experience. And if you think about it that way, you can, you can really have incredible mind numbing sex that fuels your relationship. Um, but it's really changing the way we think about sex as, as instead of an isolated incident, um, a, an integral part of fueling your relationship. That's awesome. So I like the way you describe that as foreplay being everything between the orgasms <laughs> because, uh, in my relationships, I've definitely experienced, you know, getting the fun, flirty text earlier in the day, you know, especially like being participatory in that. Like if, if I'm hoping to, you know, have a sexual encounter with my partner later that day or the next day or whatever it might be, um, really working towards that well in advance, laying the groundwork well in advance. Absolutely. Which I think gets into something you talk about, um, scheduling sex versus spontaneous. Ah, yes. The big question. So couples, couples often tell me, Celeste, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I want sex to be spontaneous. Like it was when we were first together. It was amazing. Um, and I just have to dispel that myth because, um, sex was never really spontaneous. If you really think about, you know, let's go back to our very first sexual relationship or one of the first that was significant, maybe not the very first one, but the first one that was significant. If you think about it, you know, maybe you're in college and, um, you know, you know, you see each other, the other every Thursday night for Yahtzee or whatever you're doing. I don't know. I was, I was really boring in college. So whatever it was that you were seeing them for, you knew that probably something was going to happen. And you would, at least if you're female, you would probably shave your legs or get ready in some way. And hopefully if you're male, you're doing some sort of planning, brushing your teeth or whatever, <laughs> getting ready for that, you know, incident or, or, you know, making the bed, you know, different things like that. So sex was never really that spontaneous. Truly spontaneous sex would be like you're walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden you're having sex, which is not a good experience, right? Um, so, so, um, so scheduled sex is really a way to harness the power of anticipation. So, you know, just like you were talking about before, which I love that you, that you mentioned, like those flirty texts to each other, um, you know, that can really build anticipation. And anticipation is one of those things, one of those very good keys to having great sex. Because if it's on your mind earlier in the day, um, if you're thinking about it and you are looking forward to it, you're building that foreplay way before you hit the door, you know, after you both come home from work. Um, So that's where scheduled sex can actually be so hot and so good because you know, without a shadow of a doubt, you know, Sunday night at eight or whatever you decide, it's going to happen. So you can really build, say, I'm looking forward to Sunday night, you know, this is going to be great. And what happens is that it truly levels the playing field. So, you know, if one partner has a, a higher libido and one partner has a little bit of a lower libido, um... We know, and you know, with scheduled sex, I always tell my my clients to make sure they follow through with the scheduled sex because if you don't follow through, it doesn't work. Um, you know, the 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 partner with a higher libido knows without a shadow of a doubt they are getting sex on Sunday night, and the partner with a little bit of low libido knows that you know what it's going to happen 
Sunday night and I can look forward to it. I can clear my head. I can really be in the moment and present because I know that's when it's going to happen. And the other reason why scheduled sex is so good is because many couples have a hard time um, with initiation. So usually there's one couple that initiates a lot and maybe after a while they get tired of initiation or would really wish the other person would initiate some or feel like, man, I initiate all the time. Do they even want to have sex with me? Because they never initiate. And then maybe the other couple, the other partner is thinking, you know, oh, they'll just initiate when they want sex. So what happens is there's kind of a difference of um, thought in the initiation. And, and as couples, we just don't talk about initiating sex very much because we don't think it that it's that important. Um, but it really can erode a relationship when one is thinking, oh, they'll just initiate sex when they want it, and I'm fine with that. And the other is thinking, man, I always initiate sex. Does he or she even want sex? So what scheduled sex can do is completely take that off the table. So nobody gets their feelings hurt about who's initiating and when and how. Um, and it just is there. It just happens because um, you know it's going to happen. So there are many reasons why scheduled sex can be really, really good. And I'm not saying you have to schedule all of your sexual encounters, but to keep your sex life um, thriving, it can really, really help couples, um, to make sure that they're spending time in this really important area of the relationship. You know, the part of their relationship that is the only part that's different from say, um, you and your best friend, you know, um, that sex is what sets you apart from any other relationship that you have. So it's really, really important to put some time into it. Awesome. So with, a relationship where we do have, say, the scheduled sex, and maybe it's not as frequently as, as we want it. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we've got the, the libido mismatch, but I have a friend. Um, <laughs> we'll call him. Everybody has yeah. a friend. We'll call, him, we'll call him Ken. <laughs> okay, Ken. Okay. And, and he gets it once a month, whether he needs it or not. And, of course, okay. he needs it, but he would like it to be – a little more frequent, but it's been that way since, since forever. Um, how would you advise them if they came in and, and you, and you said, and he says, you know, Hey, I, I just really want a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And she says, well, I don't want more. I'm just low libido. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's really common. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really common. Um, and lots of times it takes that third person to, a, validate that Ken has real needs because lots of women dismiss sex needs um, from their male partners as unimportant. And this is really, really key for a third, you know, a third party or in some way to for her, the, the female partner to understand that these needs are real. Um, they're not perverse. They are um, needed. It's, an, it's a necessity. And she can increase her libido. Um, it's not that she's just stuck in this low libido stage forever. She can increase her libido. So um, the very first thing I do with couples is normalize the situation. It's very normal and common that you would feel that one time a month is maybe not good for good enough for you or you'd, you'd like more sex. And it's very common, too, for women um, as they age to lose some of that libido. So what we would do is we would work together, the three of us, to... Um, work on a plan that would make sense for both of them, you know, so they're each going to have to give a little bit. Um, and we would need to see 
why her libido is really low? Is it is it something that medically we can fix? Is there um, you know some medication interactions going on? Is it that she because we know that you know the biggest killer of arousal is responsibility? Is it that she can't? Uh, clear her mind enough to be present in sex because the best sex really is um, when you are fully engaged in the moment. And for many women, that's very hard. You know, um, it's very difficult to have an orgasm when you are thinking about, you know, your taxes, we'll say. (laughs) Um, So, you know, trying to work with a partner with low libido to understand what it is that can help her relax and let go. Is that we need to take the TV out of the bedroom is that we need to share household work more or is that we need to get her help in some area or reduce stress at her job, do some stress um, reduction activities like yoga or exercise or whatever it is. And then um, making a plan that they both can agree on to, to help with that, um, increase the amount of sex and increase the engagement of sex. You know, if she's really having low libido, she's probably not engaged in sex either. But is it that they spend, you know, two minutes in foreplay in the bedroom um, when they really should be spending at least 13 to 15 for a woman? Um, So, so, you know, some easy trick that you could take home today um, for increasing time and foreplay, get your, get yourself a, what I like to call a lusty playlist on your iPhone or slow jams. jams. Yes, exactly. And what I want you to do is to make sure that that lusty playlist is at least 13 to 15 minutes long and then put it on repeat. And your goal is to make sure you're doing all kinds of really fun, really engaging, non-penetrative activities for that whole length of the playlist. And once you hear, you know, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On again, then and only then can you continue on with penetrative sex. So that's just one little kind of trick to make sure that you're spending enough time in foreplay. And it's, you know, that's a lot more sexy than like setting a timer. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. This playlist is, damn it, Pandora is just so repetitive. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) Wait, we're on Spotify. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, So does our, our sex life, does it reflect our outer life? Like our, um, in any ways, like, I don't know if that question makes sense. Sure. Yeah, sure it does. Um, Yes. So the way I work, so, you know, people, people don't just have sex problems. You know, when they come to see me, it's a sex issue, but it manifests in other ways throughout the week, right? If they're having um, problems communicating, they're probably having problems communicating in their sex life. If they have power issues or power struggles, they're probably having power struggles in their sex life. So, the way I practice is my true belief is that if you can understand how to live a fulfilling, give and take compatible relationship in the raw vulnerability of your bedroom, you can learn to have a compatible, fulfilling So I basically take, you know, 
relationships or therapy and take it from the bedroom out. And lots of therapists, which is not a, not a bad way to do it either, but lots of therapists say they will take, you know, they'll take the the relationship and as the relationship gets better on the outside, then the sex will get better. And that's an okay way to practice therapy too. It's just not the way I do it. So yes, I think to answer your question, uh, I think that you can really uh, change your relationship by changing your sex life. I really, really do. So in changing it, is that something like just bringing more spice and variety into the bedroom? Or um, do you say changing it in more of a deep, intimate way or a little both? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I think that there is more to, you know, bringing spice to the relationship in terms of those um, deeper aspects of a relationship. So let me, let me kind of elaborate. Um, If going back to this, this concept that the, uh, the biggest killer of arousal is responsibility in our relationships in the bedroom. We want to become a little bit irresponsible. Um, and that's where desire comes in. So, uh, let's talk about desire a little bit because that'll answer these questions. Um, desire in the bedroom is, you know, desiring your partner, wanting them, want to be wanting to be intimate, wanting to be sexual with them. Um, but you have to have that kind of desire outside of the bedroom too. You always want to want your partner. You want to want to be close to them. You want to want to be married to them or in a relationship with them. But the interesting thing about desire is that you cannot desire something that you have. So if I want an ice cream cone, you know, I'm thinking about an ice cream cone. I really love ice cream. (laughs) I desire to have an ice cream cone. I can have all that desire, but when it is in my hand and I'm fully partaking in an ice cream cone, I don't desire it anymore. Right. Because I have it. So it's, um, what we want to do in the bedroom is foster that want, foster that longing, foster that desire. And to, and in doing that, we, become a little bit irresponsible because when we, when we become healthily irresponsible and I, you know, not necessarily bringing a third person into the bedroom or something like that, but you know, you're talking about those spice it up activities, becoming irresponsible may look like, you know, buying some sexy lingerie or trying some new sex toys or, um, you know, trying new positions, different things like that. That's when, um, we can peak that desire again because it's something new that we're longing for. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> it, it does. It does. Yeah. And so then we transfer that into the other parts of our relationship. You look for those pieces of your partner that uh, are n- that are new because we're always, you know, uh, there was a big study um, that talked about that asked people in relationships all over the world when they are most drawn to their partner. Right. I remember reading about this. This is interesting. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So when they're most drawn to their partner, not necessarily in sexual ways, but when people are most drawn to their partner is when they are in their element. So people would say, oh, I'm most drawn to my partner when I see her teaching, or I'm most drawn to my partner when I see him, you know, telling jokes to a group of people at a party. I am most drawn to my partner when he's holding court, when she's playing her violin, you know, so they're, we're most drawn to our partner when they are in their flow and when they are totally doing something that is independent of us. That's something that we uh, admire about them. You know, that's when we are most drawn to our partner. So 
in an effort to increase desire or longing outside of the bedroom, we must always look for those things that are totally independent of us. You know, I'm most drawn to my partner when I see, uh, when I see him, uh, strategizing, uh, you know, for his work or, or something that is something they hold on their own, independent of us. We have to have that gap in order for us to draw closer. I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just reflecting. I was, I was getting thought of, of, of when I think of my lover and, and, yes. and what they're doing at that time. You know, it's like when I know that they're in their element, I think that that's, I'm just happy. Yeah, exactly. That's that feeling. That's that, that happiness and that joy that comes from seeing them be completely independent of us. Um, is just amazing. Yeah. And the, the more that you can draw on that, the more desire you will have for her and that will work for you outside and inside the bedroom. Awesome. Now in my show prep for this, I saw in your writing that you ha- talk about three keys to a lifetime of great sex. <laughs> yeah. Can, ha- have we hit them at all yet? Or do you want to go through them together in a concise way here? Sure, we can do that. And, and we've touched on a little bit of them, but um, basically over the course of, you know, I've, I've been in this business seven years, which is not a whole long time, but I've had enough time to research and draw some conclusions about the people that I've talked to. Um, and this is what I've come up with. I think there are three principles that one, uh, that a couple needs in order to have great sex over time. And that's the important piece here. You can have great sex one time. <laughs> um, but we're talking about, you know, because I, I work mostly with people who are in long-term relationships, we're talking about great sex over time. So the three principles are commitment, intimacy, and excitement. And there's not any one of these pillars of sexual wealth is what I call it. There's not one of these pillars that is more important than the other. They are, they all kind of work together to give you long lasting sexual fulfillment. Um, so the first commitment, um, commitment fosters trust, um, in a relationship and you have to be, have trust to be, you know, vulnerable in your relationship and vulnerability is one of the keys, you know, to great sex. Right. And let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, one of the things that I, I struggle with in, in, um, in, in my relationship is, opening up about saying what I want, you know, cause, mm-hmm. cause I know that in, when I'm vulnerable and saying what I want, that I'm, that I'm inviting like this potential that maybe they're going to judge me. Mm-hmm. Maybe th- I'm going to be rejected. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more about that specifically, please. Sure. No problem. Um, so that's where a commitment can come in very handy because <laughs> Um, when you have that, com- that, that kind of longer term commitment to each other, um, you know that you are in a safe space. You are in a space where what you say um, will not draw critique so harshly that you'll be pushed away from each other. That's the hope, right? Um, and in a relationship without that you know, kind of longer term commitment. And I'm not necessarily talking about lifetime, but just a a commitment to each other of, you know, monogamy, not, not seeing other people, whatever. Um, you can foster that trust and the more you feel committed and the more you feel your partner is committed to the relationship, the, 
the more uh, vulnerable, the more that vulnerability will become easier, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for allowing that little diversion there. Oh, of or- course. Bring it on. I love them. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so the second pillar is intimacy. Um, so kind of different than commitment. Commitment is kind of one of those things that you, you push through even when you are not feeling it, even when the relationship doesn't feel good, you've committed to each other. Um, so you push through intimacy is, um, you know, we like to kind of exchange sex and intimacy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. We we talked about this with uh, Michael Russer where where he says, you know, when he pulls the audience, what, what do you, the men will say intimacy is sex and the women will see, say intimacy is cuddling. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Or, or connection, you know, connection. connection. It really just, yeah. like, intimacy is in, in the look, you know, the, the, the stroking of the hair and the cheek and, and just really connecting in a tender way. Yeah, and I love that either here you uses that word connection because that's exactly what it is. It's the... Uh, it's the, um, you know, the connection between you two that you're both on this same uh, playing field that you are, are both um, really wanting the same things. Um, so, yeah, co- intimacy is definitely connection, uh, um, fostering connection. And then the third, uh, the third one is excitement. So if you have commitment and intimacy, you need to make sure you're still um, – fostering excitement in your relationship. So, so that's what we talked about earlier that, um, you know, making sure you, you can feel a little irresponsible. And for some people feeling irresponsible in the bedroom, simply having sex with the lights on or, um, you know, having sex in a new place or a new room on a different couch, any of those things. And for some people feeling a little irresponsible in the bedroom is, uh, almost getting caught or sex in a public place or, you know, different things like that. So figuring out how you can foster that excitement through slight irresponsibility is going to keep your relationship and your sex life going over the course of time. Awesome. I like that a lot. Um, so I think before we go, um, mm-hmm. how about some, and I think you talked a little bit about it earlier, but um, some Tips for couples to spice things up in the bedroom? Sure, sure. So um, one of my – so every couple is very different, as you, as you very well know. Um, and so if there was a list of things that you could do to spice up your bedroom, uh, you know, I wouldn't have a job, <laughs> you know, if all of the Cosmo magazines told you everything you needed to know. But the, the key is if you want to spice up your bedroom, think of something that you feel – uh, a little uncomfortable with, whether that's like a sex toy, you know, if you never used a sex toy before or, you know, sex in a new place, different things like that. Lingerie, role playing is a great one. Fantasy play. Um, all of those things. The, the point is it doesn't matter what it is. If you want to have, you know, people are, people will think of anything. If you want to have sex in a bed of bananas, or if you want to, you know, have sex, uh, while standing on your desk, whatever it is, um, it, if it feels a little bit irresponsible to you, then it's going to be the thing that you can do to spice up the, the bedroom. And uh. that's the key. It doesn't have to necessarily be anything, um, anything super crazy. It's just, if it feels a tiny bit healthily irresponsible to you, that's going to do the trick for you. Awesome. I like that. So kind of, um, to, to steal from Sheryl Sandberg, lean in to, your, <laughs> to your fear just a little bit. 
Yes, exactly. Thank you, Cheryl. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's where the the, the growth occurs, right? At the edge exactly. of at the edge of fear, <laughs> or at the at the edge of the comfort zone. Yeah, yes. comfort zone. Yeah, there we go. Yes. Um, I don't want to say fear. That's probably not the right word. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, Celeste, it's been great having you on the Better Human Show. Before we go, we want to make sure that we can keep in touch with you and um, tell us about what you're most excited about um, coming up for you and, and your practice. Oh, thank you so much for having me, David. It's been so fun. The time just flew by. <laughs> That's what happens when you get to talk about sex for a living. <laughs> um, if your listeners are interested, you can find me always over at drcelesteholbrook.com. That's drcelesteholbrook.com. Um, if you have any questions or you would like to chat a little bit longer, I'm always available um, for any of those chats that you want to have. You can email me at info at drcelesteholbrook.com. And the thing I'm excited about right now is I just got back from um, a writer's workshop in Maui and I'm super excited about getting on my book. So be looking for that in the the future. Awesome. (laughs) In in the meantime, sign up for my email newsletter um, and you can get some, some of that good information uh, there. So awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link everything up in the show notes. And, um, and when that book does come out, be sure to let us know so we can uh, let everybody else know. Awesome. I really appreciate you having me on David. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. We'll have to have you back. All right. Sounds good. <laughs>